You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, beautiful listeners. It's your host, Tembi Locke. Welcome to Lifted, a podcast that pulls back the curtain on creativity, resilience, and the extraordinary moments when everything changes. Amanda Riley is a costume designer with nearly two decades of experience working on television shows and films of all genres, from sitcoms to sci-fi to blockbuster action movies. You've seen her work on projects like Supergirl, Westworld, Spider-Man No Way Home, and most recently, From Scratch. I had the pleasure of working with Amanda up close, talking about texture and color and the way fabric moves as she interpreted the scenes and characters of From Scratch from the inside out. But I also talked to her about spiritual journeys, travel, and love. She is a soulful creative and a woman who follows her intuition with remarkable clarity. And her work as a designer is jaw-droppingly beautiful. I promise you, this conversation will make you want to redo your wardrobe and perhaps redo or at least reimagine parts of your heart and life. Well, hello, Amanda. Welcome to the Lifted Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here, Tembi. Thank you. For those of you who don't know, Amanda Riley is a costume designer. And in case you don't know what a costume designer does on a television series or a film, is she is literally responsible for every item of clothing you see (laughs) on any character that passes through, sometimes including the extras. And what she's doing is creating the visual template mood silhouette for a character to sort of help the character to come to life. First of all, I want to just tell listeners one of my first impressions of you is when we were on the from scratch lot and I went to visit you in your department so in the wardrobe department in the costuming department and I remember walking in and you fetted the department in this most gorgeous like I felt like I was walking into a living room like it didn't feel like I was in a you know an office park building somewhere on a lot in Hollywood and it reminded me of something I had kind of done for myself Self as a writer when we had our writer's room, which is that I like fully decorated my writer's room office, which I later learned was kind of like an industry taboo because the idea is like, don't get too attached to your office because one day you could get fired. And if you're fired, you want to be able to like walk out of here pretty quickly. And I was like, that is such a negative way to approach a job that you're excited about. But okay. So when I walked into your space, you owned that space. Like you made it so inviting, so full, so rich that I just wanted to curl up in your office and hang out for the longest time. Have you always done that with your spaces or is that something you come to later in your career? 
You know, I think just because I like to be surrounded by things that are inspiring and something that was so inspiring to me about this particular project is I was able to put so much work into my boards and into the research. And so part of what I decorated and used as a wallpaper in the office was the boards and the inspirations and the pictures of the actors and locations and different things, fabrics and swatches. And to me, I feel like as I'm sitting there and the days are long and we, you know, kind of move into our spaces and this becomes our second home. I love to be surrounded by all of those little elements because I feel like they can speak to me in moments where I need to be refreshed and just kind of be comfortable. I mean, you had tapestries. There was like tapestries. That's all I'm going to say. Amanda brings tapestry into life. (laughs) And thank you for noticing that. Yes. I completely noticed the artist in me completely noticed it. And I also thanked you because I knew that our actors when they came in to meet you and to sort of interface with the production for the first time, you know, once they have the job, you're the first point of contact. And so for you and that office to be the first point of contact was really sort of setting the stage and sort of setting the tone for like kind of what, you know, they might expect working on our show. For me, Amanda, I'm going to confess that as an actor for many years, I've walked into wardrobe fittings and like often they aren't looking at me, like meeting me eye to eye. They're just looking at me from the neck down like the whole time. And I used to always think like, this is so strange. Like it's almost like I'm here, but I'm not here. They're just paying attention to my body. And I think I understand why that happens. But could you sort of help listeners understand what that moment is and what you do? What we read on somebody's face has such a big part of how the entire costume plays in. But so much of what we see ends up being below the neck because that is our dress form, the body. That is our canvas that we're playing with. That's how we are figuring out the dimensions of how something's going to fit and how we end up working with what we are going to see before us. So it usually ends up being, okay, so, you know, these are the clothes. Of course, there can be headbands and hats and and jewelry and all those things, but there is kind of like a little interior running joke. It is like, okay, so we're dealing with everything below the neck and I'll fit people sometimes and people want to look down at the costume and see what I'm doing. And and I'll just kind of say like, oh, if, if you don't mind just keeping your head level because if it's a man or if I'm tying a tie or a woman, you know, putting a necklace on or something or pinning somebody, it's so much easier just to have somebody standing straight because that is how we can understand exactly how something is going to be fitting in a proper way. So it's really interesting to have had that pointed out. It's definitely true. I'm very fascinated by your work. And I'm very fascinated about how you do your work because as someone who's been an actor on the other side of it, you know, I've always just sort of come in when all the kind of like decisions are pretty much made about what the character is going to look like. And I come in and I've got like four or five choices, sometimes maybe seven, you know, of things to sort of try on. And it's kind of like, oh, okay, that's their idea of the character. Oh, let me fit in what I was thinking into that. Right. And sometimes they're very aligned and sometimes they're not. And either way, my job is to make it work. But I felt sense with you and how you approach creativity, how you approach designing the look of a character that you're coming at it truly from the inside out. And I know that you asked of me very specific questions about character. My impression is that you really are kind of like inside the psyche of this character. 
you know, for me, it's such a journey because the creative process in my mind, it's not just kind of a start or a finish or an end. I think that we continue to evolve and grow. And even in my experience, you know, when an actor comes in, you kind of work together to see what it may or may not be. And one thing that I have found just as I'm currently working, what I remember so much about from scratch and the creative process is that it's a vehicle and it continues to change. And so as we're doing fittings, I'm kind of learning more about who this character becomes. And as clothes start to come on and as accessories start to come on, different things start to build and it becomes this energy and this spark that starts to build on top of each other. And it's so amazing. And what I also find too is it doesn't stop just after the fitting. It's like, you know, we kind of have the fitting and the outfit gets put together. And then there can also sometimes be this magic on the day because first we fit the actor and then I start to put together boards of how all of the actors are in the scene. And so I can start to notice different things like, okay, this great looks great there, but how could this play off this other actor? Or can we, you know, create something interesting in a purse or in a sock or a headband or something like that? And I think that's where it does start to become this canvas. And I have the opportunity to use it as my individual kind of painting in a way. So it feels to me just like this alive art form that kind of starts when the actor comes in the room and kind of becomes this vehicle, a journey, really. You talk about design as like a living art, you know, and the way you approach it. I can so see that. I mean, I think we all, those who watch the series can completely see that. Did you have a sort of painterly or artful or visual inclination from very early on? Or did you start thinking clothes are my art later? No, you know, as a child, I have a sister that's really very close in age to me. So one of the things that we love to do being in, you know, small town, middle America, is we used to love to go to the flea markets in my hometown. So they have this kind of big, it's called Maxwell's street days and they have tables and tables and tables and stuff. And so as teenagers, and I think, you know, that was like the mid early nineties, things were like changing a lot in fashion. And so we really kind of dialed it back. And so much of what I, like I remember when I went to prom, I designed my own dress and it was out of a fifties dress. I did like this fifties thing and then I cut the arms off and did like an ostrich fur necklace and then took these black patent leather shoes and dipped them in sparkle. Like now I think there's a lot more of an opportunity to be able to like hodgepodge and make stuff like that. But that was so much of my youth. And I always knew as a child, having the opportunity, my mom taught us how to sew when we were young. So me and my sister always had sewing machines and we were cutting quilts and making jackets and altering things, cutting shirts and taking men's clothes and kind of cutting them down. So in my heart as a child, I always knew no matter what it would be, that it would have something to do with clothing. Because to me, that just felt like something that I understood and that I could control in a sense. And I knew how to work with and just having the freedom to be able to play with elements like that and have my sister too. She's super creative. So that was always such like a fun thing that we could do as young kids growing up in a small town. Kudos to your mom, first of all, <laughs> Really, <laughs> you know, which is a great segue because I'm very interested in who are the people or maybe the events really that sort of influenced you in a profound way. It sounds like your mom gifting you guys this sewing machine or to work with and sort of setting that example of creativity. Are there other people that you can point to or even events that say, ah, this really set me on my path or I can see the direct line between that or this person and what I do now? 
Yeah, it's interesting because when I hear that question, what I envision in my head is the room that me and my sister grew up in. And we were really into music from the 70s. And so we would listen to Donovan and The Doors and The Beatles a lot. And so much of their clothing, like Donovan and Janice, you know, they were making stuff out of upholstery fabric. And I think just being inspired by that music, like I remember like being up late at night sewing and it was really the music that inspired us. I think I've heard you talk about in your childhood in a small rural area, horses and play and the role of play. And I think I heard you talk about creating forts, forts for horses. Can you tell me what that is? Absolutely. So as a child, I have four brothers and four sisters, and we grew up on 44 acres in Wisconsin. Most of the fields were harvested for soybeans, but we had a couple of little lakes on the property and we had horses. And so one of the things that we were able to do as kids was ride the horses, walk the horses. But because we had all this harvest, one of the barns was filled with these big rolls of harvest. So what keeps them together and then also what keeps the horse food together is this baling twine. And so my sister and brother and I took the baling twine and we would make these forts. We had kind of like a small wooded area close to the barn area. And we would create almost like a fantasy land. So we would weave together the baling twine and make little areas where we could sit. And then we would weave together the baling twine and create areas where the horses would be. And it's so interesting looking back, like we would create these little worlds in these forests where we had, you know, real live horses. And of course the cats would come and dogs and whatnot. And so I think just being able to have the freedom of wandering out into a very, you know, safe area and the woods and whatnot, and being able to create with our hands, it has sparked and aliveness. I mean, there's a freedom there, right? Yeah. And what I hear in that also is this idea of like, from very early on, you are imprinted with the idea of constructing and creating. I mean, you are quite literally creating structures, right? For other beings, animals, you know, if you will. I think that's absolutely fabulous. And it also reminds me, it's a reminder to all the listeners out there, put your phones down, put TikTok down, because can you imagine if if you had had just like an iPad, like you would have just been in your house, you would have missed all of that, right? Yeah. And I think the opportunity to be inspired by nature and to say, okay, this is what we have to play with. I bring that a lot of times into work when we are on the set or we're sourcing or working with something. It's like, okay, I have this to work with. And so how can I make the best of what I have with these things? And I attribute that to how you had flashback to my childhood. Definitely. You know, I love what you're saying about pulling from different timelines in terms of styles and clothing and sort of what they teach us about that moment in society. I had a friend tell me that clothing also follows the economy. And what I mean by that is she said, particularly hemlines get longer when we're in a recession because people have less money to do things like go get waxed or get their nails done or tone it, whatever it is, like we cover up more because we're not, and I don't know, does that resonate with you? I think that's such a beautiful way to look at the world. And also to me, when I think of it, I think of it as something that is definitely a historical reference because of the age of online and all of these things, we can become so self-reliant on doing some of those things. And also nowadays, I think that we are pulling from so many different time periods So it's really interesting and one of my favorite things about costume design and about learning about history and about looking at clothing from the past is to understand the nuances of how society has affected us so much. 
I didn't really understand that costume design could be a job. And when I learned that costume design could be a job, I was just floored at how it took the idea of being able to construct and pull things from different periods, but still be able to create characters. It definitely was something that kind of snuck up on me. But the second that I knew it was something I wanted to do, it was definitely laser focus. And even as I continue to go on my journey and in, in my life, it's something that has changed so much for me, my idea of what it means and how I draw inspiration and the different things that I am interested in and the realm of design. But it definitely was something that once I knew that I wanted to do it, I completely followed. I think the message here for me, for listeners, I think we have it a little bit in our, not a little bit, a lot in our show, is this idea of really following your heart and being in such alignment with that and leaning into it and being brave enough, I might say, or curious enough to honor that path. We're constantly in situations where we have to problem solve and we have to move fast and we have to make sure that a lot of the boxes are ticked professionally and creatively and is the budget, you know, where it needs to be and kind of all these things. And when I find myself in these moments where it kind of can feel like a lot and feel overwhelming, I always go to this place inside of me. And that place is my heart because I know that that's where the truth lies. And I know that that is the present moment. And I believe that that is the thing that is the constant. It's the one thing that we have control over. It's the one place that we can go that is that complete calm respite to say, okay, there's all of these elements going on. There's potential decisions I may not be in control of or, or may not unfold in the way that I want them to. But if I can just continue to follow not only my heart, but for me, when it comes to what I'm doing creatively, what is that spark of beauty and truth? It's kind of all wrapped together. It's the heart space. It's where the beauty lives. It's that essence. It's all of those things. And that's to me where I can, even if it's like a minute or two, that moment of calmness in the middle of a storm, like how can we attach to that? And as I've gone on my journey as a person and as an artist and as a human being that has taken risks in my life, that is the place that I always find to be the safest and the cleanest. You could not have said it better. I always say love as a creative person is when I lose track of time. I am doing something because I simply want to do it or I'm curious about it or I need to know more. And I don't even interrogate my curiosity. There was a period where I would be like, why am I curious about this? This feels like it doesn't make sense, right? Or I should be doing something else. I dispensed with that about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it was the best thing. I'm just like, oh, I'm curious about it. I'm going for it. And then you lose yourself in that. That's love. And you can follow that. And you can follow that to a career, which is what you have done quite elegantly and quite beautifully. And then you get to share that magic with other creators and with others and now with the world, right? With all the work that you put out in the world. So in some of those early professional experiences where maybe it didn't feel like the love, <laughs> you know, it felt like this is a good professional path, has all the right, you know, sort of bells and whistles, but it doesn't quite feel like the love. Where's the bravery come in? Like, what does it look like for you to then switch gears? When I came to fashion school in LA, I moved to LA by myself. I didn't know anybody. I decided to just take a leap of faith and go to LA. I found an apartment on Craigslist. I paid six months in advance. At that time, we were kind of just getting into cell phones. So I'd map quested my way to school. And it ended up being the most incredible journey 
that I have ever taken. It's the journey of really trusting myself and going for it. While you had asked about a lot of the earlier professional experiences, I have had an experience recently in my life where I have decided to do just that, which is completely change gears in my life. I made a commitment to myself as an artist that I wanted to do something that I had learned about a little bit just from studying different things in shamanism. And the word that I use for this is the beauty way. I asked myself in a moment of kind of just feeling a little bit directionless internally, what if I decided to just take the beauty way, just the beauty way every single day? If I wake up every single day and the only thing that I focus on is taking that path in front of me, that's beautiful. Dressing myself in a way that feels beautiful, making my home filled with the things that to me feel beautiful. That is currently the path that I'm on. That's currently the path I'm on. I love this. And I want everyone who's listening to really deeply, deeply hear this because this isn't about where you are. It's not about what you have or don't have. It is about an internal listening and an honoring of what sparks within you and following that, the beauty way. And so it can be as simple as putting those beautiful earrings on that you love. It can also be taking a walk in nature because that fills you. And I have found in my own life, and I certainly am hearing from you that it is a way and a principle for you that if you follow that beauty way, one, step after the next step after it leads to something magical. It becomes transformative and it doesn't do it overnight. It doesn't do it in a week. Sometimes it doesn't even do it in five years, but each day you're filling your coffers up and you're connecting to source the beauty way. And you said shamanistic work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Your particular form of shamanistic work, because I think it's very hooked into your creativity. Thank you so much for pointing that out. One of the things that I consistently come back to in my life and something that is a complete touchstone for me is learning. And so something that I undertook during the lockdown was studying Tibetan Buddhism with a Rinpoche from a monastery in Italy that was reciting these Buddhist texts. And so we would do three hours a day online, just listening and then kind of having these talks after. Where it relates to shamanism is I'm very interested in all of the different ways that people feel connected. I, I believe that every, every path of faith leads to one thing. I use shamanism for me as one tool to help me connect, helping to understand the earth and the four directions. And of course, now the beauty way and when it comes to Buddhism, understanding those principles of emptiness and all of the different tenets that come with it, it's not just limited by those two different ways. But one thing that always helps to bring me back to myself is that sort of listening and also that sort of faith. So for me, the shamanism path can be found in the Catholic Church because I think it's the same we're looking at the same thing. To me, when I walk into a Catholic church, it's one of my favorite things. I love being surrounded by this architecture and the paintings and the people. 
that have made these incredible cathedrals and then sometimes they're monasteries and sometimes they're temples and Machu Picchu in Peru and, and all of these things. It just boils down to me for this incredible faith that is beyond what I can even comprehend, but I always use it as an opportunity to go back to when I might feel that I'm not sure what my next step is. Because as an artist, it can sometimes be walking forward, but only seeing a little bit ahead and, and having the faith and the tools that exist within shamanism, within Buddhism, within the Catholic religion and, and all these things to help to keep me strong and upright and moving forward in this loving way. I so appreciate your sharing of your joy of going inside of a Catholic church in Italy. So I want to just slow down there a little bit and kind of hook that into this larger conversation. So I too enjoy this. I am not, I was not raised Catholic. My parents were actually very overt atheists <laughs> when I was young, right? They've since come to their spiritual and, and in one case, religious paths subsequently. And then I was inside of Baptist churches with my grandparents. I get to Italy, I go in one of these churches. I'm like, what is happening here? It's the interplay of the light. It's the architecture. It's the gold leaf. It's the frescoes. It's the color. It's the vaulted ceilings. And as I was studying there, what I came to understand is that all of these structures that humans have endeavored to create are a send-up. They are a song to the eternal. They are an attempt to capture the grandeur and grace and infinite that is source. You can call it God. You can call it life. You can call it whatever you want to call it, right? But it's like our glorification of that bigness. But that send up is what we're doing. And so then I was like, okay, I, I think I get it. I get why people go to cathedrals. I get why you go to a cathedral. And then you also light a candle in remembrance or in prayer, because you're also trying to, again, hook into the eternal, hook into the one source, the one light, right? But then you break it down from an art point of view and from a creative point of view. And these masons, these artists, these creative people labored over many generations, sometimes for centuries. So they were saying, you know what? I'm putting this piece of gold leaf over here in this corner and I may spend the next 10 years just doing that and that's my job. And that's gonna be my contribution to this bigger structure, right? And no one may ever know my name. <laughs> the work of creating magic in the world often looks like a very humble everyday activity. And you're doing it in faith. And what I mean is not a religious faith. I mean, you're doing it in faith saying, this matters, what I'm doing matters. And it lifts me. And I hear that in your share. I hear that in what you're saying is your joy and your shamanic work and how that ground you then in such a place that you can create beauty like you did on our show from scratch. Your time in nature, <laughs> those formative years of yours really have shaped and helped to do that. I mean, I can feel it in the conversation and I see it in your work. And I do think you're playing. You're playing every day, aren't you? Absolutely. I definitely feel like that. You know, they say, find something that you do and it will not become work anymore. And when I am working, I feel just like that. I feel completely in my element. I feel completely surrounded. I feel completely in the present moment and tapped into the source. There's so many 
people along my path that I've been inspired by. I can't say that there's any one individual, but perhaps many. And some of these people include Beethoven and Jim Morrison and, and music and Audrey Hepburn and kind of all these people that in my mind have this kind of holy spirit of being able to like grab onto a current of something that's existing and ride it. And so the way that I work is I try to be quiet when it comes to a lot of outside influences in terms of what people are doing on other projects or what's a la mode in the world of fashion and really try to tune internally and use all of the different tools that help me get through my daily life and to feel really balanced in my daily life. And I use those in my work. And so I like to think of it just as listening, really listening, because each project has a way of speaking to you. And each actor and each page of a script has a way of really speaking to you. And when I find that I'm feeling unclear, I allow myself to find those quiet moments and just listen to what the next step is. What are some of the ways that you meet obstacles? Is it that quiet listening that you were talking about? I would say in those moments, there becomes that you get to decide. I make a decision. Like, am I going to like freak out and not think that there are the answers? Or am I going to know in my heart of hearts that even though I looked through that entire rack and that one thing didn't appear, it, it's there. It's going to appear. The thing that I need is going to appear. It's going to happen. I know that it's going to happen. I have faith that it's going to happen. I have history that it's all going to arrive the way that it's supposed to. It's just making that decision to find the solution. Mm, making the decision to find the solution. And that feels very grounded. Like even in hearing you say that, it's like, okay, there's chaos surrounding me. <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns. Maybe there's a time pressure as well, but I internally have made the decision to find the solution. And that's not negating the chaos or negating the fact that, okay, this is going to be hard, maybe difficult, challenging, or, you know, okay, I am freaking out. I really like that you shared that because I think that's something we can all take with us in moments of crises, in moments of deep change. It's like, okay, I make the decision to find the solution. And then you trust in that. I know as a caregiver, which is a completely different thing, it's not costume designing by far, right? But you make the decision to find the solution and that you don't have to do it on your own. You may, you know what I mean? You can ask for help. Absolutely. Most definitely. I think you can ask for help. And I think that in those times too, I can also admit to myself and even potentially the people around me, like, I don't have the answer in this moment, but we're going to find the solution and we're going to figure it out and we're going to do it together. And that's what's so fun about being on a team. And, you know, we're working on this moving target and it has its own timeline and its own energy. And if there's no way we can really stop time, but we can, can become grounded in that moment when something isn't appearing right as we want it to. We rise and fall with each other's strengths and our weaknesses. And so it's never any one person, right? So are we all going to lift together? So the way that we can lift together is I now say, okay, Amanda has said she's going to make the decision to find the solution. 
I hear that. I'm going to calm down myself and know that a solution will be found. And then we go on about the work. I almost want to say I worship at the altar of what if. What I mean by that is that so many moments in my life, the path has changed because I asked the question, what if? What if I wrote a book? What if I dared to say, no, I'm going to adapt it? What if I go to Italy? What if, oh, I do decide I'm going to have a wedding in Italy and I've got two cents of <laughs> in my pocket, but hey, I don't know, right? Like the what if question, what if I could rebuild my life after my husband has passed? What does that look like? So the what if is big. Like asking yourself the what if is like a big thing. But then the second part to that is what you said, I make the decision to find a solution. This is a perfect pivot to talk a little bit about from scratch. And I want to go right to an episode that is a costuming feat for me to have watched and to have experienced. We know that in this episode, episode 103, there is a scene with a wedding dress. This is our wedding episode. And for me, having my actual wedding dress <laughs> recreated on screen was incredible. And the story of that was a what if, it followed the what if, right? Because I asked myself, what if they could actually use the actual dress I wore, not the physical one, but they could remake it? What if? Then I reached out to Amsale, the designer. They agreed. And before we knew it, it turned out to be better than our original ideas, which are trying all these different other kinds of, of, of wedding dresses, right? Did you feel that as a, as a designer that we had on to something magical by asking what if? Absolutely. I think the opportunity to be able to have that exact dress was such a magical part of the story. And then all of the other pieces fell so beautifully around it. It's just visual eye candy. I can't imagine that there is another dress at all. It was so perfect. It looked so beautiful on Zoe. They literally made the dress. We put it on her and it was perfect. It's one of those things that rarely happens. It was another one of those beautiful, magical, from scratch moments where it just arrived like little doves had dropped it off and she put it on and it was perfect. And when I think about the episode and I think about my favorite scene of the episode, I think about the moment where the family gets off the bus for the first time in Italy. And as a costume designer, to be able to just like take it up a notch to that level. And it's not a big moment, but it was jam packed and it meant so much. And so when I reflect as to what to me felt like such a great moment of that episode to, to be a part of design wise, it, it was that one. Because I feel like there's so much flavor in it. Well, Attic and I certainly felt it at Video Village when we were watching and we saw the scene on set and they were coming out. We're like, oh my God, this feels like the cousins. They've just gotten here. Attic and I were howling, howling at Video Village just at the look of it. You talk a lot about the fact that you tell a story with a look, finished look that, that a character has. What story did you want to tell for Amy and Lino when they first got to Sicily? Because I did feel like I was rewatching it recently and I saw how like they'd had this big swell of the wedding, right? The wedding happens and then they're getting off this train. The clothes suddenly felt super relaxed and like, like the fabrics just fell with ease. And it, it suddenly was like, oh, energetically, yeah, they're in their honeymoon, but this new place is even reflected in the clothing. 
Absolutely. They're taking this jump together to start this incredible journey of two people coming from two different places and two different cultures. And ultimately, like we had talked about earlier, it's two different styles of looking and two different styles of being able to source things. And I really wanted to reflect where Amy was at in her life, in her journey, and keep this kind of youthful new wife feeling. And the same with Lino. They are relaxed and they're easing into this beautiful opportunity to finally be together. And there was a spirit that was very much present from the first meeting that ever happened with this project. And every single person that touched the project, every single person that came through felt this energy that was so incredibly transformative. And it reminded me of why I have chosen this path. But this project, it was different and it was heightened. And it brought together these souls and these people that all had the absolute same goal. And it was to be able to embody this story in the highest possible way with the most integrity with the most love, it didn't matter what it took. But to be able to work on a project like that, I, I can't say that I would like to do it any other way. Thank you. Thank you for reflecting that back to me. I mean, we certainly set out to create that space that we could all step into and with integrity and safety and love, do that work and then help that it be lifted. You know, Attic and I talked about that a lot, but to hear that from you and to know, like, I think once you know that you can work that way and that you can be in concert with others in that way, that you get to do your highest and best work, you seek it out more. You've made me feel very happy and joyous today. So thank you for being with me here on the Lifted Podcast. I wish you all the best. Bambi, thank you so much, so much. You're beautiful. Thank you for existing. Thank you for all of the offerings and the opportunity, truly. This conversation with Amanda has reminded me of the power of choosing the path of beauty every day in small and big ways, and how in doing so, we stay open to the magic we ignite our curiosity and we lift our lives, and that the wisdom we gather along the way is shamanic, spiritual, and utterly transformational. Lifted is developed, written, and produced by me and my one-woman producing team, Salia Cates. It is edited by Jamie Moss. Thank you for joining us. Stay tuned for our next inspiring episode.